How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 85. Ooh, Director's Corner Week. It is a Director's Corner Week, Jake. But before then, mm. got to kick off with uh, our newest tradition. Our new quote. A quote from a 1985 film. 1985, Zeke. Yes. Brilliant year for film. It was. The um, Doc was alive. The Doc was alive, but I'm not quoting Back to the Future. That's my hint. Okay. That is my only hint. I'm really curious if you're going to get this. Okay, I'm three and one. Yeah, yes, yes, you are okay. three and one. So uh, this will be our fifth round. Here we go. So I almost just read the name of the director. It's <laughs> the first thing I write. All right, so quote from a 1985 film. This is a short quote, Zeke. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. 1985 film. I'm going to call this Raging Bull. No. Oh. No, this is from The Breakfast Club. Oh, yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah, it's what, um, oh, God, I forget the name of the character, but yeah, he says, he says that to uh, to the criminal. No worries. Mr. John. Uh, well, John Hughes film. There you three go. And two. Three to two. Still on the credit. You're, you're doing good. You're doing good. <laughs> now, I was pitching to you off the show that uh, you should quiz me for the 90s films. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Uh, and maybe we can start keeping a score sheet. <laughs> We we got a good memory though, because you 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 got a better memory than me on that already. Yeah. Well, so uh, no worries. Well, it's time to move into back to the regular scheduled broadcast. Um, <laughs> in what movies we watched this week, and Jake, I'll be happy to tell you Ooh. that I watched more movies than days there are in the week. <laughs> it is true. Well done. I watched well eight done, in the last week. So yeah. you're making up for the weeks. I'm going to severely disappoint a lot of people though. <laughs> In the fact that, although I watched eight films in the last week, oh, at least half of them were two and a half stars or less. Oh, so that's uh, that's the not good zone. So we'll start with my not goods, because okay. that way we're working into a nice uh, positive. Oh, I beg my pardon. Only three of them were below. So actually more good than bad. Oh, that's, that's always so nice. First off, the latest edition in the Drink to Cringe installment. <laughs> Starring none other than Noah Centineo, who is oh, yeah, the definition yeah, yeah. of bad movie on Netflix. I know what you're about to say, yeah. SPF 18. I've seen this one. Yeah, that's, that kind of surprised me. What a horrible movie. Yeah, uh, you you were lucky in the sense that... So you watched this in a group. Drink to I did. Yep. I See, did. the group I was with, we weren't drinking. We just watched it straight. Whoa. <laughs> Could not watch this in a sober setting. This mm. film literally made no sense. <laughs> and its pacing was actually one of... You know the funniest thing about this film? Mm. I actually think the film, this film has worse writing than The Room. Whoa. But I think The Room's performances are worse. So it yeah, kind of well, balances the, out. I mean, if I, I mean, the stories about The Room are so you know, up in the air, like what's true, what's wrong, but, uh, or, you know, what's fake. But the the whole thing is that Tommy Wiseau's original script makes absolutely no sense. It's, and and that, that had someone, I think it was the script supervisor to come in and make it make enough sense that they yeah. could literally speak words on the camera. Well, I think there are parts of this film that literally make no sense in terms of the pacing. <laughs> For those who, I would never encourage anyone in a sober setting to watch this film. However, Yikes. if you need a fun drink to cringe game, this is definitely up there. This is up there with Kissing Booth, up there with Swiped. <laughs> I did drink the Swiped with you. Yes. So that and was good. this is on the same 
quality level, I think, is swiped. If not worse than swiped. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember this, this. It's a very forgettable film, hmm. of course, but I just remember thinking, like, this was just their excuse to do some snow... Uh, not snow. Um, surfing. Surfing scenes. Yeah. Watch which in themselves up. were okay. <laughs> yes, watch Surf's Up. Um, watch Breath. Breath is better surfing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Without question. <laughs> Wouldn't even... And I don't like Breath at all. <laughs> so, but no, obviously, um, the first third of the film is about the main chick trying to lose her virginity, followed by the second block oh, yeah. being a collection of her falling in love with another bloke who's just camping on the beach for some reason. Right, because she's, she's dating that guy, isn't she? Yeah. And then just this random beach bum. She's like, oh, I kind of like him more, though. <laughs> Remember Literally that? And makes it's no it's sense. Uh, Keanu Reeves' like beach house. Yeah, and, and he rocks the, up at the end of the movie. He's in the... Well, I, that's the reason we watched the film is someone was like, oh, this is, Keanu Reeves is in this. I was like, yeah, in the last five seconds of the movie, <laughs> it wasn't worth it. That was an embarrassing film. Mm. That was, um, so moving on from that, I moved into another Noah Centineo film. What in... are you doing to yourself? <laughs> well, we were in pursuit of the drink to cringe, but the perfect date, admittedly, was just a very below average, but competently made film. There wasn't really anything essentially wrong with it. There was not a lot right with it. But unfortunately, I can't really criticize. The story was coherent. Mm. Uh, there were the writing was the performances were okay. Um, it just was a, kind of a crappy concept made up with a even crappier sort of you know ex, you know a seldom ex, seldom to below average execution. And gotcha. That's really all I got to say about that film. I never heard of it. That one. Uh, it came out last year, so. Because mm. um, twenty nineteen, really... we all know, was a great year for film because because of uh because of that and boy Noah. <laughs> He's just he must have a reputation for just being these shocking films. Now it's just it's beyond a joke. Mm. Um, and finally, this one actually was actually got a okay rating on uh, Letterbox, but. Um, I did not enjoy it, and that was the Brian Hegland, Hegland film Legend, okay. which is Tom Hardy playing two twins, gangster twins, and it's like a British gangster drama. They should have called it Gangster Twins. That's a, that's a much better name. Um, it was not twins. good. It was long. Uh, the second act is a snooze fest, and <laughs> to be honest, it's just sort of an excuse to be for Tom Hardy to kind of flex multiple different acting muscles, but... He, he. Even as a gangster, I've mm. seen him in better performance. His performance in *Peaky Blinders* as a gangster, right, far yep. more compelling. Um, when he does these really heavy British sort of films, I almost, I don't always enjoy them that much. With his mm. like, I don't know if it's more close to his actual accent, but I've never been a big. F- I think him in *Inception's* good, but like, yeah, I prefer. I actually prefer some of his more American stuff. But I liked like, it. Like Bane. Yeah, I did actually. <laughs> did, admittedly. Um, yeah, so they're the three average to terrible films I watched in the last week. Uh, I'll throw it over to you, Jake. Okay. Uh, let's see. I watched... Um, yeah, I've got a pretty good mix here as well, to be honest. So I'll start with... All right, well, I'll start with the more recent films. So I finally caught La Belle Epicue, which is a French film. Came out. Uh, came to Luna a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And this is the one I've read it a couple of times on the show, and it's it's the it's the guy uh, Victor who's sort of 
I reckon he's in his 60s. He's feeling sort of uh, alienated from the rest of his family mm-hmm. who are very technologically savvy and, and sort of have gotten their emotions for him. So he ends up going to this service. It's actually his son's friend who runs the service, mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially... Um, it reminded me a bit of this uh, sequence that they did in the second season of Kidding. But the idea is that it's they recreate this whole like setting and uh, they bring a bunch of actors in to portray uh, basically a setting of your choice. And you can go in and sort of live that moment in time. And he decides to live... Uh, you know, a few days in 1974 when he first met sort of the love of his life. Mm. Or, you see, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I actually forgot if this was meant to be his wife and when he first met her versus like the girl that got away. I'm mm-hmm. going to be honest, I completely forgot <laughs> which one it was meant to be. Uh, but it was really interesting in the sense that, I mean, I loved it a lot uh, for yeah. its tone. It felt like I wrote this on Letterboxd. It took the romanticism of Midnight in Paris sort of meshed it with this sort of obsession of reality recreation that you see in like the Truman Show or Cynodoke in New York, meshed them together and it just, it felt really unique and fun mm-hmm. with that and I just loved the character of Victor so interesting because he's almost like picking apart this this thing that's solely created for his experience to, to relive this moment in the past and he's the one oh you know that person didn't quite do that that way you know he's, he's sort of picking it apart as he's going along but then you have the guy who's running it all who is so obsessed with recreating it accurately and and giving mm-hmm. this ex- immersive experience to them who's basically tearing his hair out because of this and uh yeah it's you know it's, it's a bit more of a traditional love story from that point of view but i love the premise and i love where they take it tonally and even the editing, like, it's so fast-paced. It's just so rapidly switching from scene to scene. But it works. Like, I was following it all, mm-hmm. unlike the film we discussed last week. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, but um, so I was really impressed with that. So that film is La Belle Epoque. Uh, I think it's meant to translate to English, like, Golden Age. I think that's what it's meant to translate right. to. But I really liked that film a lot. Uh, the other one I caught was a recently released documentary called Chasing the Present which uh, I was a little less keen on. So this is one, I think I read it on the show last week. It's a documentary about a man, James, who suffers mm-hmm. from anxiety, and it's sort of his journey to learn more about it. So he travels to India, he travels to meet all sorts of experts in the field, and it's mostly to do with the the spiritual side of right. anxiety and self-discovery and all these things. And I thought the, sort of the idea behind it was definitely well, you know, natured in, in theory, but I thought the execution was a bit strange. So it was directed by, uh, God, I think it was Mark Waters. Are you able to, I don't have my phone in me. Are you able to quickly check that for me? I can. Just go on my profile. I'll be at the front. Uh, I think it's Mark Waters who directed. I think it's his only film. I think a lot of the people who worked on this, it's their only film. And it felt like a documentary that was trying to be a narrative, like drama or a narrative drama film. Uh, what, the this way, one's Chasing the Present? Yeah. Uh, Mark Waters, yes, you are Perfect, correct. I nailed it. Um, <laughs> that I think that was really distracting for me because, first off, it starts off like it has the opening credits with, with the cast, which, you know, feels like a film. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't they want to save it for the, when the actual interviews pop up? And then the way they shot it, and it's beautifully shot. I should put that out there. A lot of the shots are gorgeous to look at. But when it gets into the conversations, you know, they, they sort of place James with, you know, this expert... Or there's, there's one example where he sits with... I forget if this is meant to be like his dad or someone. 
uh, he sort of reminded me of like the general Uncle Joe character. He's like your uncle that doesn't believe, you know, in anxieties and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. So he's sitting there and sort of disbelief, you know, visually scoffing at James for all of his like the experiences that he's trying to retell and relive. And it almost felt fake because they were sort of edited around the dialogue. So it felt like they were, you know, patiently waiting to finish each other's sentences. It didn't feel like an authentic conversation. Mm-hmm. And even like the way he would move his face is like, pff, pff. it's it's <laughs> it just didn't feel offensive. It was really weird. So like stuff it just felt like, a bit odd. Yeah, bit yeah. Like even there's a point when he's going through this sort of meditative thing, and it ends with him, you know, he's breathing and then letting out his frustrations, and it, of course it ends with him like screaming, mm-hmm. just trying to sort of let let go of it. It's very but, odd. Which, well, what's interesting because it's like okay, this is an interesting therapeutic experience but now they're in a cutting it with this like highly stylized shot of him uh some sort of camp bonfire thing and then they add all this reverb to his scream so it's just like it feels a little overly dramatic why couldn't they just let it play Mm. out so it was stuff like that that made it feel like it was trying too hard to be a film over a documentary just weird sort of um Mm. stylism yeah well it was distracting so I don't know. It, it was cool and cinematic, but then I don't know. I think that kind of brought it down for me a little bit. Russell Brand is in it, which was a little strange. Mm. It was one of those like, oh, look, we got a big name to sell the documentary, and it seems like a small document. Only six people have logged in on Letterboxd. <laughs> I was the sixth person to to. It feels give like it, like a score. it feels like such an odd choice to Russell Brand. Yeah, well, I get, you know, he was talking again about the spirituality of self-discovery and all that, which is fine, but he's also like the only subject that doesn't interact with James. Mm. So it just felt like they got him, but he was too big of a name to actually sit down with the main subject of the documentary and talk with him about it. Yeah. So, that's yeah. A, that's, that seems like an odd one. Um, going on the documentary mm. note, okay. um, yep. I thankfully managed to catch... I actually caught two documentaries and speaking of ones that have no logging on letterbox this one isn't even on letterbox um so unfortunately i can't count it to my count but i did watch it um it was called uh, stars in the sky a hunting story Mm. and it's on netflix so you can check this up um it's directed by and stars stephen ranella and it talks, okay. it, and here's, I'll just give you the logline because it's the best way to describe it. Examination of the lives of American hunters and the relationship they share with the environment. And this one's an interesting one because, um, like I said, it's not on Netflix, uh, on Letterboxd. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's still a 90, it's an 89, 80 minute documentary. Mm. So it's a full feature documentary. Yeah. And I mean, the fact of, it's on Netflix alone tells me it's really weird that it's not on, on Letterboxd. Yeah. And it, and it was actually quite a high-quality documentary. Mm. And it's an interesting subject matter. So it sort of talks about the philosophy of hunting mm. and sort of the, the logic behind... Because um, often you find that these sort of films, are at least discussing the topic of hunting, yep. are normally very anti-hunting. And it sort of talks about the relationship hunters have with conservation and how that sort of actually goes hand-in-hand hand with each other. This is not game hunting like when people go to Africa and kill an elephant. This is right. hunters, the guys who hunt deer and such. Mm. Um, and I found it quite fascinating and actually quite impressive. Um, it doesn't feel like, like I said, it was directed and starred. Um, 
the one man, and I'm pretty sure for the most part was predominantly created by him and a relatively small crew. Um, and it honestly was a very impressive documentary for that sort of situation. Mm. Um, I think the problem could be because it's performative, it may come across as propaganda more than uh, because of it his participatory. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't really, it is very one-sided. It's very, oh, hunting's this big, deep philosophical mm. reigns and people that talk about trophy hunting, they examine that a little bit, but predominantly it's a very pro-hunting documentary. And I think that is one of its shortcomings. Um, if I was to give it a rating, it'd probably be sitting on a three to a three and a half, potentially. Yeah. Um, I do think that the one-sided subjectivity of it is actually a drawback. Mm. Um, I love the examination, but I also like uh, not feel like I'm being made to think a certain way in a documentary. Gotcha. Um, and something like... You You'd know, rather the documentary sort of explore both sides and, and respect the viewer to have their own opinion. Absolutely, gotcha. yeah. Um, and if you look at something like, if we talk about another minority group uh, documentary, I talked about Behind the Curve, where they talk about the Flat Earther community, yeah. um, in which they very much cross-examine... Uh, both sides of the story yeah. um, and you're sort of left in that documentary feeling like well these people if anything they're just sort of part of a community and they want to feel a part of a community mm. um, and then of course the questions do get raised multiple times what if they're wrong what's the philosophy behind them believe uh, completely negating science mm. whereas in this it just very much feels like I'm a hunter I like hunting there's a philosophical reason and I've spent my life trying to push that philosophical reasoning and now i'm using this documentary as a platform to push that philosophical reasoning more right. whereas not being opened up to the criticism and the other side and i feel like that's one of the biggest problems with the documentary right it's fascinating that you bring that up because i don't want to cut you off again but i also watched another documentary that was very very similar in terms of its approach to audience interpretation and all of that because I did watch Loose Change 9-11, an American Coop, and what this is is a 2009 mm. documentary about uh, sort of on the side of the pro-conspiracy discussions of 9-11. So very much like that documentary, mm -hmm. this one is very much focused on we're going to convince the viewer that this was an inside job. And it sort of goes in detail of every single argument you've read online about mm. the building collapse or the, the government's response to it. Like everything you've read is discussed in this documentary. And it was made it very hard for me to give like a score or mm -hmm. to review it from an objective point. Cause I really don't want to get into this cons conspiracy stuff from a personal angle, but I ended up giving it a fairly low score, like I mean two stars. Uh, and the reason was I decided to look at it. You talk about the participatory sort of nature of that documentary. I think about Michael Moore. I think he's a go-to example with that and Morgan Spurlock, but with Michael Moore, he's very much open about his position in certain things. Mm hmm and even though his documentaries don't explore the second side of anything necessarily, uh, there is it still allows the viewer to go in and be like, okay, well, I can disagree, but I'm going to listen to his argument. And not only did I think this docker about 9-11 didn't really do that, uh, it was directed by Dylan Avery, whose entire filmography, by the way, is just recuts and re-edited versions of this film. This is like the one that ended up on stand. Mm -hmm. It was like the final cut or whatever they want to call it. And not only that, but he doesn't even do the narration. He hired another actor to do the narration for the film. So that sort of lacks any punch that I should feel like from a documentary that's clearly taken the stance of, you know, fight the power, stick it to the man, you know, screw the government. From that perspective, I think it's a poorly done documentary because he's hiding behind the camera. He's not Michael Moore. 
He's yeah. not, you know, the subject of the hunting docu where he's in front of the camera. Hey, this is my passion. He's hiding behind the camera, spitting all of these sort of facts that you and, can easily yeah. deter. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up giving a fairly low score be- from that angle of, I think, as a Michael Moore-esque character, he needed to be in front of the camera. He needed to not hide behind voice actors and, and other techniques of editing, you know, mm. other people's thoughts. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that quickly because that really ties in perfectly with the doco you just watched. Yeah, it's it's um it's an interesting one because it's like you don't want there is a certain amount and obviously all documentaries display a subjective truth, mm. but it require you need to have both sort of sides of the coin, and mm. that's what separates the average to you know not as good documentaries to those that are actually very impressive, very intriguing mm-hmm. and insightful because they allow you clarity on stuff that's allegations. For example, my other documentary I caught this week, Three Identical <laughs> Strangers. Very nice. Thank you. Very nice. Um, discusses how three, uh, well, as it says, three, three identical, identical strangers. strangers. Yep. Um, so in the 19, early 1980s, three uh, brothers who were all from an adoption agency discover that they have two respective identical siblings. Mm. And it all starts with one of them going to the university that the other one was at the previous year and them thinking that he's the other guy, which leads to (laughs) those two meeting each other, um, which then leads to a newspaper article in which the third one read, and they're all based around different uh, parts of New York, the state. So they all were separated all lived completely different lives and didn't meet each other until they were in their early 20s. And obviously this leads to huge publicity as a, uh, as a um, amazing sort of crazy coincidence story. But it actually leads to a whole can of worms being opening. And I don't really want to, because this is a really good documentary that's now Mm. on Netflix. Yeah. I don't want to spoil too much, but there is way more to that meets the eye. However, they explore both sides of that situation through different talking heads. They talk about the psychological impacts that it had on those three siblings, but they also talk about who other other people trying to rationalize what happened to them when yeah. they were younger. I, I will say, because I've seen this, I haven't seen the doco, but I've, I've seen it around and, and my mum's seen it and talked about it to me. So I know what you're trying to avoid in terms of spoilers, because mm-hmm. I agree that's a really cool thing to learn organically. Yes. So I, I, I want to sit down and watch this documentary and see the story, because it sounds, you're right, really fascinating. Yeah, and it all really the is. you could take. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was the other documentary I caught this week. Um, yeah, did you catch nice. anything else, Jake? Uh, the only other thing I'm going to mention, talk about now on this mm-hmm. first half of the show is This Magnificent Cake. So this is a 2018, I guess it's technically a short film. I think it's like 42 minutes long. And it's Technically, just, that's feature length. Oh, I think I think 45 is the IMDb. What? I would say 40. Okay, okay. Throw your, throw your feature bone. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what this is, it's sort of this very abstract um, anthology film of all of these characters from the 19th century or late 19th century colonial Africa. And it sort of explores all these different characters. And I should clarify, it's an animation. It's not quite claymation, but there is sort of a similar stop-motion effect and they have this interesting sort of um, cloth and texture Mm -hmm. to them. It's just a very visually pleasing film. 
But again, it's very abstract. There's a lot of things that happen in it that it's one of those, this can only happen in animation type films. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want to say too much because I think it's really fascinating. So if you have Stan, I recommend checking this out. It was recommended to me by um, uh, my friends Nick and Evie and they really uh, found it really interesting and, and the character stuff really emotionally drawn them, which for me, I was more focused on the animation than the character stuff. But it seemed like there's a lot to take from this film so uh, yeah. this magnificent cake check it out there's one other film i saw this week but i will save it till the second half of the show very intriguing mm. um so the only other things i want to add before we move into the second half of the show was i caught uh, a couple of other films um i caught a very a uh, couple of seldom uh, films mustang island was a black and white uh, indie film directed by uh, i got it right here uh, craig elrod um uh, I thought it was fine. Um, I'm always in pursuit <laughs> of my next Blue Jay sort of situation. Yeah, it comes... sort of surfing the web almost. Yeah, of course. You know, you check an indie film out, see if it works. and Most of the time it doesn't, but for, <laughs> e- for every five eh, to not good ones you get, you get one that just blows you away. Yeah. Um, Trouble with the Curve, which was a Clint Eastwood, um, Justin Timberlake, and Amy Adams 2012 film. That was fine. Directed by Robert Lorenz. Uh, he's only done that film. so Interesting. Um, it's about a baseball scout. Uh, and then the other uh, little indie darling I did, um, if you'd call it an indie darling, I would say at this point, Sam Mendes, the 2009 film Away We Go, um, with John Krasinski and Maya mm. Rudolph, which I really enjoyed. Interesting, because nice, that's, that's long after um, American Beauty. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. So I guess uh, it's just a nice, uh, yeah, just a nice film. Um, found it in an op shop bin and then just bought <laughs> it and watched it. And then the only other film I watched, which is probably the biggest one I watched in the last week, was the Brian De Palma 1982 film Scarface. I saw this first time watching Scarface. Very nice. Yes. Uh, 1983, beg my pardon. Oh, there you go. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's Very long, nice. though. Boy, it's long. Yeah, it's three hours, yeah? Uh, 170, yeah. So just under three. Yeah, 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 okay. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I feel like it's comes back to, I think it's one of the things on your scratch list. It is. It's one of the only... I think I've only got 10 films left on my scratch list, and that is one of the ones I still haven't seen. Yeah. In Scarface. Very enjoyable. But that is all I watched for the last week. That is all you watched. Eight films. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So, uh, would That's you... fair enough. Do you have anything to contribute in our career section? Um, I have a funny story, actually. Oh! I'm going to just tell a little funny story. Nice. I thought it was appropriate for this section of the uh, of the podcast. Okay. So, I've been doing my soaring Saturdays, little drone pickup videos and stuff. Yes. I figured I'll go down to Jarrodale on this past Saturday to get some footage there. There's a lot of nice bushland there. I wanted to check it out for a potential future shoot that I might be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, let's bring the drone down. And I got ch- I got chased by a bee. Now, I want the audience to know, <laughs> I I have an irrational fear for bees. And even after learning just a couple of months ago that I'm actually not allergic to bees, after being stung by one, and being perfectly fine, I am still terribly afraid of bees. Mm-hmm. So, I parked on the edge of the road. And I was like, oh, this is a good spot. I get out. I see the bee. I'm like, oh, so I like I move away, and I realize the bee starts chasing me. I'm like, oh, geez. So I just jump in my car and it's parked on this like 90, not 90 degree, but like a 40 degree angle where the, the door just like shuts itself because I'm, the car's on an angle from where I parked. And I've got my stuff with me in there, but I see the bee start hovering above 
like the glass, like the front mm-hmm. uh, windshield area. <laughs> and I was like, this bee is trying to kill me. And in addition to that, not only was I stuck in my car with a bee hovering above me, but I had left my drone on the hood of my car, not turned on. So I couldn't, I had to go back out just to turn the drone on just to film that footage. And uh, it was a little embarrassing how long it took for me to <laughs> man up and go back out and, and do my footage. But it's, it's, you know, <laughs> I find it more funny that after all that time, you finally realized you weren't allergic to bees. <laughs> it's, uh, like, it's like learning I was allergic to eggs when I was 17. Most people are like, how? I'm like, I don't know. And then, yeah, same with bees at 23 years old. <laughs> No worries. But that's out. You can watch the drone. <laughs> now you have the background context of this 60 second Bit of production drone. context. Yeah, exactly. That's always good to have. No worries. <laughs> well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. That's the one. And our latest director's corner. Who's the director, Jake? And what uh, are we watching? For this week, we're doing a Rob Reiner as our director, the director's corner. And we are watching When Harry Met Sally. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. A chance encounter between two graduate culminates a short-term friendship. But when fate brings them back together five years later, they are forced to deal with now how they feel about each other. Ooh, spicy. I'm not sure that's a really accurate logline. Not really. It's actually a different logline from what we read last week, where it does clarify that 11 years have passed. Yeah, that's an intriguing uh, logline. I would say that that's not very accurate. Well, hopefully Uh, if you're listening to the show by now, you've seen the movie. Yeah, and enjoyed the movie. (laughs) You're looking at me funny. No, I don't don't think your jokes are warranted, though, but we'll get into it in a minute. Oh, wow, okay. How intriguing. No, this <laughs> film is obviously directed by Rob Reiner and is our latest director's corner. Um, yeah, Jake, Rob Reiner. Rob we, Reiner. We did uh, already one of his films on this show. We did The Princess Bride about 23 episodes ago, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, of course, one of the last times we had a guest on the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually true, yeah. Um, I think Jack, we had, no, 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 that was after Jack's last appearance as well. Yeah, so it was... We haven't had a guest in a long time then. <laughs> I think it was uh, Perry Watson for that one, and we she had... was the first of the three guest episodes. Yeah, right? along with um, Stephen and Zach. Yes. And she came on again for Lady Bird, and then that was our... That was... We haven't had a guest since Lady Bird. Wow. There we go. That's we got to find a way to remedy that. But yeah. until then, let's talk about when Harry met Sally and we Rob should. Reiner. So Rob Reiner, this is his fifth film. So mm. he... Uh, Spinal Tap is actually his director's debut. Mm. which I didn't realize. And that was the other film I watched this week. I finally watched Spinal Tap for the first time. Mm-hmm. It was technically, according to Letterboxd, my 1,000th film. Wow. So, uh, That's I pretty cro- cool. I crossed that threshold. I had to go through Adam Sandler's old filmography because I really wanted to get to 1,000 without watching any more <laughs> films this week. And I was like, oh, I've seen Bedtime Story. <laughs> so I've seen Mr. Deeds. Uh, but yeah, funny. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very great. And also, I'm glad I watched it because it was able to work into some of my thoughts on, on Rob Reiner as a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also did Stand By Me and The Princess Bride, uh, leading into this being his fifth film when Harry Met Sally. Of course, he later did Misery, A Few Good Men, uh, so on and so forth. And I think he did The Bucket List more recently. and Films like that. Yeah. I feel like he's more of a Danny Boyle kind of director. Yeah. 
where he tackles a lot of different kinds of things. I wouldn't call him an auteur voice, per se. I feel he's someone that picks genres to tackle and then tackles them very well. You know, I think Spinal Tap is the quintessential mockumentary film. I think this film is the quintessential romantic comedy. I think Misery, maybe not the quintessential, but it's a brilliant example of a drama horror thriller. And, uh, you know, I feel like he really nails the types of goals that he's after in terms mm. of the films he's directed. I don't know if he's sort of... I don't want to say lost the plot, but I don't really hear people talk about his newer films. Well, Shock and Awe. Uh, we've got The Magic of Bell. He did wow. an LBJ film the same year as the Brian Cranston one. That he is, did, 2016. Yeah, which is really weird. It is very weird. With yeah, uh, Woody, can... Woody Harrison. <laughs> I'm just perusing through the, the lower... Oh. Tier ones, <laughs> yeah, the and the bottom of the list, I see. And uh, yeah, I would say, from looking at this, there are seven films that are definitely uh, quite. Str- I mean, he's got one called Flipped, which I find intriguing. But um, I've heard of Flipped, yeah, yeah. So he's probably got about ten notable films, I would say, eight to ten notable films. Mm. Um, which for any director, that's quite impressive. Um. We talked about Stephen King being the king of the like the seventies and the eighties, but I think Rob Ryan is up there as well. Like if you look at these films, that the ones we just listed, it's like there's some classics. Oh yeah, anything, pure classics in here. You look at anything from uh, Spinal Tap all the way up to yeah, you know this film from nineteen eighty nine. Mm. Um, it's very impressive, and um, I remember watching Misery as a. a younger man, and, and yeah, we were both too young to watch Misery. Yeah, that was a. <laughs> Never going to forget that. <laughs> Brilliant film, man. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like looking through them now. And yeah, I can say that um, I find a lot of those films, yeah, in the 80s, very impressive works. Mm. Um, pretty strong given these first ones in 84. And he managed to put out four films in the next five years, which is very impressive. And then quickly followed by Misery and A Few Good Men in 90 and 92. So mm. he was... Putting them out, and he, he out some pretty half-decent films, too. For sure. And I think this is actually a fun fact I noticed, is that, um, do you know what CinemaScore is? No. So it's essentially this uh, market research thing from Las Vegas that give grades to certain films. And I'm, I, you might have not heard of it, but you've definitely seen. When a film comes out, and it, you know, it's got an A- minus from audiences. Like, that's sort of a mm-hmm. thing that goes around for a lot of films. And out of the 90 films that have gotten A-plus scores, three of them... And Rob Reiner films. There you go. Which includes The Princess Bride, A Few Good Men, and this very film we're about to talk about. No worries. Um, yeah, so we have, obviously, up until this point, we've just kind of built up our director, but now we're going to go into the film of the of the week. Mm. And I love this film. Um, straight off the bat, I think this is the best rom-com of all time. Woo! Um, that, is, that is high I praise. I would like to see someone try and come up with a better one. Um but I think this film is its just perfect. It's the perfect rom-com. It's right. been, in my opinion, it's been the apparatus for the modern-day rom-com. I think every good rom-com will find some form, some form or tie back to this film. Mm. Um, and I think that's what makes it the quintessential rom-com. So I love it. I think it's two of the best casting. I think this was... You know, for Meg Ryan, this is the height of... This was the start of kind of just how mm. she just became this 
figure of of the rom-com she became the rom-com girl and for you know for billy crystal this is one of those few uh i guess technically serious roles but not really serious but still like it was nice to see him in a live action position well his character yeah exactly because he's mike wazowski which i was like that doesn't sound like mine about five minutes in you're like oh yeah i I can hear it now (laughs) and it's interesting you talk about meg ryan in that way because much like and we did this in the silence of the lambs episode we did there were several other women who were meant to do this role Mm. who for whatever reason backed out didn't want to be a part of it and it was a case of the person in, in that case um, bloody, jeez, I'm like Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. That took me longer than it should have to remember. Uh, in the case of Jodie Foster being like, please, please, please give me this role. It was very much the same case with Meg Ryan in this film. And some of the other casting choices were going to include Susan Day, Elizabeth Perkins, Elizabeth McGovern, and Molly Ringwald were mm-hmm. the other sort of ones that were looking at. But I, I agree with you. I think the casting is spot on. And yeah, I mean, you consider it the quintessential rom-com you've got mm-hmm. it's one of your very few five-star films yeah on Letterboxd, which is always we have a elite elite club <laughs> <laughs> well that's the thing it's like i i knew harry met sally we've all seen the scene the famous scene in the, I'll in have the what she's having. Right? yeah yeah <laughs> um but i having only seen this film for the first time in the last week i was curious i'm like why is this film held in such high regard and it's not just you like many of my friends think this is one of the best rom-coms of all time mm-hmm and watching it, I see why. And I definitely like the film a lot. I'm also a little puzzled. I'm like, five-star film? And here's, I don't have any negatives about this film. I think for me, when I look at a five-star film, I look at a film that either sort of looks at the whole apparatus of filmmaking mm-hmm. and that utilizes every tool in an interesting, unique way. And I think that's why, like, random films like Swiss Army Men are the types of films that I end up giving, like, a five-star rating Mm -hmm. for whatever reason it may be. And for this one, it's... I think there's a simplicity to the direction of this film, which I think absolutely benefits the film. Mm -hmm. But it's because of that simplicity that I'm like... It's hard for me to call it the best rom-com of all time. But I agree with you Mm -hmm. in that it's absolutely inspired other films. And it's inspired uh, terminology that we use today in our own lives with relationships. Yeah. So I'll give you that. I think one of the strongest things this film has going for it and is one of the crucial elements to a rom-com to succeed um, is having two characters start at opposite ends of the spectrum and then meet each other in the middle and to make the audience want that to happen. Mm. And in this film specifically, we are told from the very start that we shouldn't want that to happen, (laughs) that it should never happen. Right. And yet as the film unfolds and these characters grow up, and de- and develop and share a chemistry that is i just hasn't really been topped in that sort of level right to make us really want them to be together and then immediately regret our indulgence in that relationship <laughs> is fully a testament to the writing and more importantly, the performances and chemistry between Crystal and Ryan. Mm. 
there are a lot of things I like about it. I like that he is a modestly good-looking man, but he's not a Hollywood pretty man, no. Billy Crystal. And I think Meg Ryan is very similar on the female side. You could argue she's the girl next door, sort of. Yeah. Look, if she wants to pull off that look, she could easily do that. And it's precisely, I think, why she then went on to do things like You've Got Mail and Sleepless in Seattle, where she became this, Mm. the every woman rom-com girl. Um, It's a similar thing that someone like Rachel McAdams has gone on to do in the 21st century. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I was even thinking of Mean Girls while you were just, not Mean Girls, sorry, um, The Notebook. Notebook, While you were just thinking in terms of chemistry. Yeah, yeah, she's definitely this generation sort of Meg Ryan, Mm. whereas... You know, but I feel like Meg Ryan set the precedent for that. And maybe you could argue before that, maybe someone like Barbara Streisand was probably the one before Meg Ryan. Yeah. Um, albeit it was a different time with Streisand. Streisand was very much the Broadway musical and that you know, sort of embedded in the roadshow picture era. But this, I think, is why that I just like it so well. I think, I think Reiner has a natural he just knows how to it's the same reason why you like the relationships so much in princess bride because the chemistry between Mm. the ensemble cast is so strong and to get uh to put people in positions in that film um to be that entertaining i think is a testament to that film but it really takes it to another gear in this film and i mean Mm. you can attest to spinal tap and the chemistry of the the band in that right yeah absolutely how how entertaining they were to uh, perform because I think you gave a Spinal Tap a quite a. I actually. Uh, oh, you weren't a big fan. I actually bumped it back from three and a half stars to three stars. I'm I'm gonna be honest. I watched it when I was in a bad mood. Okay. <laughs> so that might have been part of it, but the more I think it's like it kind of it serves its purpose. It's a funny movie, but um, I think that's sort of a common thing with Rob Reiner is like he makes great films, but they just don't speak to me so much on those mm-hmm. levels. Uh, that, but again, that being said, I have a lot of great things to say about this film in particular when Harry met Sally. I think you're right with the chemistry, the writing and performances, they're the standouts. And that's why I think the film benefits from being simply made, mm. that it has such a simple, straightforward structure of Whoa. every scene, every single scene is either dedicated to those two being in the same room, developing their relationship, mm. or talking to their friends and also developing the relationship. And I'm not being facetious. It did remind me of Disconnected in that sense of Mm -hmm. every scene is either devoted to them being together or them talking to their friends about the relationship, which I thought was quite funny. Well, the writer of When Harry Met Sally was Nora Ephron, who also went Mm. on to go write You've Got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, there you go. (laughs) So you can can definitely see the elements of the back and forth between characters. Yeah. Um, I think this is the strongest I've seen Sleepless in Seattle. I haven't seen You've Got Mail, but I'm pretty confident in my saying I reckon it's not going to be as good. Yeah. Um, well, you, I, won't, you won't be the only one saying that. No. Um, I also, I thought even in Sleepless in Seattle, I don't think Ryan has as good a chemistry with Tom Hanks as she does with Billy Crystal. Mm. Um, and I think that comes back to his sort of casualness, Um, He also, in this sort of, I mean, you know, us especially, we grew up with Monsters, Inc. So we're aware, like, for us, Billy Crystal, for the most part, is Mike Wazowski, who is a very larger-than-life character. He's very over-the-top. He's not very calm. He's Mm. quite a neurotic person. He's very anxious as well. So he's always sort of huffing and puffing his way. 
even in this film, I think for the whole way through, there's a certain amount of casualness mm. in uh, Crystal's performance, a real subtlety. I think when he's feeling, uh, you know, at the start of the film, he, he's talking to this, uh, you know, he's, you know, his introduction to Meg Ryan is, is basically he's making out with this <laughs> fling and he's just like, oh, yeah. I'll call you and then proceeds to try and seduce Ryan nearly on the spot. Well, it's funny because I didn't even see that as him coming on her. Like, yeah, he kind of stares at her and says, oh, you're a really good looking woman. But I kind of believed him. When he said, I'm not flirting with you, I'm just stating a fact. It's essentially what he was saying. And I kind of believe... Because he does have this sort of nihilistic, um, you know, casual flair to him in, in that scene, in the very first scene before we jump in time. I would say it sticks through the whole way through. I think there's a certain amount of self-deprecation that he always has. And mm. it gets it only gets more emphasised when he's, you know, he's gets married at the five-year mark. At yeah. the 11-year mark, he's going through a divorce while Ryan is on the precipice of of in a really serious relationship. And I sort of like the fluctuation of life because it sort of mm. expresses the messiness. Well, of it feels true to form of like, yeah, these characters are growing up and they're finding each other again in different places in their life. So I, I like that aspect of it a lot, mm. of seeing, you know, different periods of time. And, you know, one has to go through a divorce and one has to go through a breakup before they can actually sit down and have a coffee together. Yeah. So I like that whole angle to it all. I think um, one of the that is if you would ask me what is my favorite part of the film, it's definitely going to be the chemistry, the performances, and the writing. Um, even for the supplementary characters, the friends mm. of both uh, Sally and Harry, um, one that is played by Carrie Fisher, uh, Marie, and uh, I think it's uh, Bruno Kirby for Jess. Um, yeah, Bruno Kirby, who's in uh, Spinal Tap. I noticed that in the credits. And I also thought looked a little like a taller Joe Pesci. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, I thought that. I was like, oh, it looks like tall Joe Pesci in this. Mm. But um, yeah, they're really great. I love her Rolodex as well. Yeah. The Rolodex. System. She's like going through all the. <laughs> She's really great. good. Um, I think I always like seeing her in things that has nothing to do with Star Wars. Like I only watched the Blues Brothers this year, and she's in that film. Yeah. Um, and I think she's she well she was a very talented actress particularly in the 80s, I think, obviously, I think mm. her certain addictions led to uh, diminishing returns. But at this point in time, yeah, she was still capable of putting out a really good performance. And sort of the mini arc that she goes with her partner, that is yeah, uh, yeah. Harry's friend, that they both went on respective double dates and <laughs> it burnt out and ended up being very clear who had the natural chemistry with who. Yeah, yeah. Um, Made for just made for good jokes. Well, I, what I liked about that, and again, this is something that progresses over time. When they their friendship and their bond gets closer together, you actually really do feel the frustrations throughout the film of them progressively being single, progressively struggling to find their own partners because they're both actively trying not to get together. Yeah, because I think there is this mutual understanding that even though they're attracted to each other. And it's very obvious at the initial New Year's party that they're attracted to each other. But, yeah, there's this frustration they have, especially when that happens, and then all of a sudden their two friends are dating each other, and they're, they're moving on, they're, and they're like, oh, what you know, what should we buy for you know the living room? Or should we keep this table? Uh, just those scenes I loved, yeah, in the sense that when 
Billy Crystal turns around. He's really frustrated having just mm-hmm. seen his ex-wife. You feel that. You're like, yeah, I get it. Because it's just, you keep seeing it over and over again. They keep failing to find partners, failing to find love mm-hmm. in that way. And it, it's nicely done. It's not over the head. It's not like sappy. It's yeah. just like genuine frustration. I love that. I think that's what, I don't think, I mean, that's one of the, I think another one of the strong points of the film is is, is the simplicity, straightforwardness of it. It's mm. a it's a linear narrative that takes place over pretty much a decade of, of friendship and courtship. Yeah. Um, leads to its boiling point and the fallout you feel. And I think in a film like this, it's hard to have a full-blown you know, academic breakdown of why this film works because it's just, for the most part, a very entertaining, compelling film. It's a, I doubt we're going to have the same level of an in-depth conversation, something like Portrait or something like, right. uh, you know, There Will Be Blood, which we did on episode 80. Yep. I think what Reiner succeeds in this film and, you know, we talked about with Princess Bride and um, even Misery is, I never thought his cinematography was ugly, but it never thought it was ambitious. No, but um, th- there's there's two specific things he does in this film in regards to direction mm-hmm. that I thought were very clever. And, and you're right, it's not overly ambitious, but just the way that he blocks scenes. Yep. I thought was really not like the camera just sits. And in the case of the New Year's, when they're they're twirling around and we sort of see each face, or when they're on the plane and Billy Crystal's head sort of comically pops up, or on the, they're on that like flat escalator thing. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're so, their blocking is just so good. Yes. And it lets the camera breathe and re- again, on the performances. And to your point, in terms of critically anal- anal- having an analysis of, oh, what, what makes this film so special, I think it is the simplicity of just letting the performances speak for themselves. He does do another nice thing with the, the phone conversations and makes it like frame that. it so it's yep. they're sharing a bed together. And he often does draw those vertical lines a lot in this film. Mm. Um he really likes to keep them on different sides and not share too many frames together. Yeah. And if they do, it's in a wide shot that still just draws that distinguishing line. And I really like that mm. because it shows that obviously in the moments where they are feeling the most close or the closest to being in relationships, they do actually share a close, intimate frame with each other, like in the twirling dancing sequence. Yeah, I love um, that shot. <laughs> and you know it's even little things it's like uh even the thumbnail that you put up for this week's uh, episode you know yeah. you look at that shot look at your phone vertical lines <laughs> vertical lines um, open your phone look at the picture look at it but um no you're exactly right there's such a similar i mean that's one of the reasons why i picked that photo is because it in terms of symmetrically fitting it in a one-to-one frame it was literally a perfect like ratio to fit both of them equally in the frame so that, I, that really does speak to your point of how they're shooting this couple. I also love the locations. Yeah. Like, this was something that I know is like, he's using the most random location because this does feel like a play because it is such a, a straightforward yeah. structure of, I mean, it's got, the certain, me, it's got the, I just saw a comment on Letterboxd and I think it's kind of correct to an extent. It's, okay. it's like a more lighthearted Woody Allen film. And it does feel a little like a Woody Allen film. And it's funny because we had Woody Allen, Two, two, two episodes ago, ago, yeah. So it's um, you could I could definitely see the parallels to a Woody Allen film, the fascination with this one doesn't have the same sort of uh, erotic relationship to the New York landscape. Um, no, uh, the location isn't really a big deal. 
no. in this film? Not no, really, not no. in the same way that Woody Allen's kind of fascinated no. with architecture, as we mm. talked about Midnight with Paris. Um, I think this is very, very much a story that takes place in New York, but it's not about New York. Whereas with Woody Allen films, New York is a big part yeah. of what constitutes... It's, it's an important character, Yeah, for sure. I... I even with that so because yeah I love his use of locations because I mean I actually wrote this down like other than the many 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 cafes and restaurants mm-hmm. that we spent uh, here we have obviously the plane where both both like the actual airport and then the plane itself the uh, like that little baseball practice rink I forget what it's actually called mm-hmm. but like when they practice a batting cage yeah batting cage exactly uh, the gift store that they go to where mm-hmm. they they're sitting on the karaoke machine the uh, bookshop. The bookshop, the museum, the one where he asks her out to the movie and she's like, I've got a date. Um, yeah, the football stadium, which even that, I love the the way they sort of cut to that with the Mexican wave. Mm. That's like, there's such an interesting way to, to transition into Especially a Especially when he's talking about, like he's going through getting his divorce, divorce and he's getting up and doing it. <laughs> really I was waiting for the moment when they stopped going with the crowd and it never happened. They just keep going up. I was like, it's so interesting. I, I love I, the locations, yeah. Yeah, but it, most of them are always shot in the scene. There's no New York paraphernalia, is what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. There's no, like, they do, there is a scene where they walk through Central Park, but it's not a clearly distinguishable shot of Central Park. It's very much no. just a collection of trees where they're walking together, and yeah. they go into a an aviary, but there's no mm. shots of the New York skyline. There's no... Uh, you know, Statue of Liberty or anything that yeah, like, yeah. clearly distinguishes that this is New York City. And for anything, it's just a city. It just feels like Rob Ryan being like, "What's an interesting place for them to just be at right now?" Yeah, you're right. There's no romanticism of the actual city of New York. Um, yeah, you're right. Not 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 any of those like iconic mm. things. Even like the trees you mentioned, that feels like such an iconic. Or, I mean, that is the iconography for like. Yeah, the couple walking down and the yeah. you know the the spring the, leaves are coming. Those down. shots, like the sequences of that like particular location, I've mm. seen that at least two or three different films. Yes, yeah. that exact location, that orange color palette, and that mm-hmm. has got to be a direct homage. Um, and I, I, I and there are always lesser films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I exact, and even one in terms of homaging a very famous scene. I don't know if this is your going to be your highlight scene. Mm-hmm. I purposely didn't because it feels a little too obvious. Uh, is of course the scene we mentioned earlier, the uh, the fake orgasm scene, which we watched. In, I remember we watched that in class. That was one of the scenes. Yep. And uh, very famous. There's a few. Uh, I don't want to say funny story. I mean, first of all, I actually liked it because there's actually a bit of character growth for Meg Ryan hmm. in this moment. Because obviously, the first time they meet, they go to dinner, uh, or it's a cafe. Or they go to some restaurant. And she embarrasses herself. She says, like, out loud, like, oh, I can't remember what the quote is, but it's something about sex. And then everyone sort of stops and looks at her and she mm-hmm. feels sort of awkward. So it almost feels like a, a bit of a step up from that moment to her doing this very public well, it just display. Shows growth. Yeah, exactly. So I appreciated that as well. Mm-hmm. But um, just sort of the iconicness of it. I mean, again, it's the authenticity of something that prior to this, we wouldn't have seen that scene in a film before this film did yeah. it. In terms of yeah, exploring relationships and what's punched my microphone. <laughs> uh, so I, I I get why this film is so seminal because of that reason. It's mm-hmm. doing things that films wouldn't have done prior to that in terms of this authenticity and oh, let's talk about fake orgasms. And I even read a story of like one of the early screenings, how every woman in the theater was cracking up during, and every man was dead silent, <laughs> which I think goes to show that both genders, if you will, were getting equal 
sort of say in this film. Well, I mean, it comes back to the subversion of gender roles. It definitely feels yep. like they rotate um, the gender roles. Obviously, in the original, uh, the f- the first interaction between the two, it's very clear he's a man, man. He she's a traditional woman, yeah, and she's then petite, as and uh, she has a very conservative. Order, very whereas conservative. he's very just open about his sexuality. He's okay with being a womanizer. He's mm. okay with casual sex. He's not a believer of monogamy. And then yet, five years later, he becomes a candidate for monogamy while she is finding her feet as a career woman. That's when the slow transition occurs. And obviously, when they hit the 11-year mark, he has now become a full victim of divorce. And yeah. he's kind of just, most for the most part, a nihilistic, pathetic mess. And she's the one that really brings him out of his slump. Um, while she's mm. very confident in who she's become. And a... even on that same token, and I wouldn't really consider this like a spoiler, I suppose, mm. but like even towards the end, after certain events occur, she's almost on that nihilistic train as well. Like she's wearing black to a wedding. Mm. She's talking about holiday suicides. <laughs> We're talking about Christmas. So I love that crossover for sure. And, you know, it's it's classic writing. This is such a textbook example of writing two characters who are polar opposites mm-hmm. but are still attracted to each other on some level or how they cross over and yeah absolutely. i would i would compare it to Bre- breakfast club you know we quoted earlier in terms of films you could easily watch in high school and get so much out of the writing and character development yeah absolutely i think um, it's up there okay do you have anything else you'd like to add um let's see here let's talk about the interview pieces that sort of come in this film because it does oh, open yes. up on it's big big point yeah Yeah, elderly couple talking to the camera and i think this was interesting for me watching it because initially you think oh it's doing that notebook thing where i guess did i just spoil the notebook i don't know who cares (laughs) well that thing of you assume it's them you know it's oh we're gonna see them and then we're gonna cut back to this thing because i guess that's the only other thing that disrupts the structure of the film in terms of it's solely about these two characters as we're seeing multiple elderly couples you talk about how they met how they got married and that sort of changes the driving question because initially i was like oh well i guess the driving question of do they get together is out the window Mm -hmm. but then you see the second couple the third couple the fourth couple you know oh well i guess it's back on the table do they get together Mm. Uh, because you know the whole time that's that's sort of yeah that's the double entendre of of when harry met sally though it's not it's not the meeting that we traditionally think where two people say hi and meet each other for the first time. It's yep. <laughs> we're talking about when Harry met Sally, when they got together. Mm. Um, and I think that that comes back to when you're in a couple, people ask how you meet. They don't, and often for most couples, the first time they meet each other is not when they become a couple. That, not at all. Well, even even the stereotypical, you know, love at first sight or. You know, there's a fun little cheeky story for how they met or won each other's loves over, but you're right for that for Harry and Sally, it's it's a much deeper story that does span over eleven years, mm-hmm. which sounds a little epic in that way, but it kind of is if you think about it. Yeah, so, um, it's a long I, I, game. Yeah, exactly. But and then of course um, they bookend it with we do find out what happens to Harry and Sally. Mm-hmm. I will say with that final scene. So obviously there's, you know, things have gone on and they sort of stopped talking. And then he, I think it's, he, he chases her down to the New Year's party, doesn't yes. he? Yeah. And I was a little surprised. First off, Sally's very like, you can't just come here and exclaim love and win me over. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, this is going to have that twist ending. They're not going to get together. 
Mm. And I, they, they really make you believe that up until the very last second that maybe they just never meet again. Yeah. And uh, I was... Uh, uh, He's uh, got a good monologue, though. There's a great monologue. I do I do like like what they say to each other and, and his sort of omission of like the, the specifics of his love, mm. which I guess is sort of an easy way to... <laughs> Yeah. To to express that, but there was a deep rooted blackness in my soul, Zeke. Oh. That kind of wanted to see the version where they don't get together at the end. <laughs> That's brutal. I can't allow that. <laughs> Harry had to meet Sally. Well, they had to meet, but did they have to get together? No, I'm look, I'm glad they got together. Obviously it does book in the interview sections. Like I said, it's just a deep, dark part of my soul that wanted to see uh <laughs> <laughs> what what happened there it's a it's a strong no for me on that one it's a strong no that that's fair enough but yeah um it was interesting the because again we travel through time you know a five-year jump i guess a six-year jump because mm-hmm. i feel like the film said five years and then five years but it's 11 yeah i don't that kind of threw me off a little bit um but i wanted to talk about like the age makeup or the hairstyles to kind of make mm-hmm. them look younger I thought it was kind of funny. You didn't like him? Nah. I think you just have to roll with it. I think it's... You know what's going on. I think, ele- like, 11 years, thankfully, is a safe enough gap mm. that you're pretty much getting the turn of one century into the other. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is an 89 film, and it's potentially... It is set I imagine it's very contemporary day. to the time, yeah. Um, so, obviously, 78 would be the starting point, 78, 79. Yeah. So, by that logic, yeah... Thankfully, only a decade, not too hard to bridge. If it was any longer than 11 years, you could be getting into some... 40 years! Yeah. yeah. Well, notebook territory, you know. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't mind. I just thought it was funny, because, again, this does feel like a play in a lot of ways. Yeah. The simple structure of it. So it's like, you just have to roll to with be the To be fair, the, f- the first... Actually, the first two jumps are the two shortest. Like, the first... The, the opening setup. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 78 and then the 83, 84. Mm. Um, so the 78 and the 84, those two, particularly the, the 84 one, that's actually a pretty short uh, oh, the part scene, of the film. The scenes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually yeah. do jump through that pretty quickly, those loops. Yeah, and then they get to modern day much quicker. So Yeah, probably out the first 20 minutes, maybe. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, before we... In the present day, quote-unquote. Yeah. Um, there actually was a play... <clears throat> or an if adapted... anything, I wouldn't say the first, the first act would probably end when they get to the, the modern day. I think it's probably later than that. Mm, I would say probably once they've started talking properly. Yeah. Maybe that that's the transition into act two is their montage of them getting to know each other, calling each other, watching Casablanca. Yeah, that's fair. Which uh, I, I like that discussion. Yeah. They were they were they were film buffs. <laughs> I like that. No worries. Um, no, I was I was just gonna quickly say that they actually did adapt a stage play in two thousand four. Oh, for this because I was like, this feels too, like not simple, but like, I mean, Breakfast Club had a play adaptation because of the simplicity mm-hmm. of like the locations and the structure of the story. We're not going back and forth in time too much, so it doesn't surprise me that this has its own stage adaptation. Mm. No worries. Yeah. Would you like to move into highlight scenes? Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it, Zeke. No worries. Well, I'd have to say my highlight scene would probably be... Um, oh, this is a toughie. <laughs> probably the to... double date. 
Okay. I like the double dart. I like that. I think it sets a lot of precedence for uh, all four of the, the obviously, our two main, Terry and Sally, and their mm. best friends. I think it's a good uh, dynamic. I think it brings the best out of all four of them. Um, makes it just it's just quite an entertaining scene I didn't obviously want to go with one of the more obvious scenes it would either be that or the pillow talk scenes where they're both on the phone to each other I like the composition the shot composition and the chemistry I even like those shots they repeat it later on um, with the four way phone call Mm. or it's two and two I suppose yes that that was that was funny I liked that a lot so that would be they would probably be my highlight scenes. That's fair. Um, yeah, like I said, I didn't want the fake orgasm scene to be uh, too. Uh, what's the word? I didn't want that to be like the obvious one that that I did. Um, I, a couple of fun facts on that actually, really quickly is SD Reiner, who is uh, Rob Reiner's mother, was the one who delivered the classic line, "I'll have what she's having." And if you actually go to that deli now or the Cats Deli, they actually have a little sign dangling above the table. That says this is where or where Harry met Sally. Hope you had what she had. That's what it says in the sign. So maybe one day Zeke, we can go to New York and and, uh, and have what she had. Have what she had. So what what place is have... what's the actual place name? Uh, I just got here. Cat's Deli, like K A T Z Deli. I think if there's like a whole thing on Wikipedia for it, so you can probably find the restaurant. They're probably yeah. very proud of that. Uh, they must very be proud of that. No, <laughs> they probably imagine. have a whole pie named after it. Ooh. Yeah. I wonder if it tastes as good as it, as it sounds like. Yeah. Well, whatever um, she was having. <laughs> exactly. So my real highlight scene, um, other than the fake orgasm, is probably the gift store scene. So it's, oh, when, yeah. it's when the two of them, they, they're just sort of looking for a gift. They find It's not a karaoke machine. It's like a... It, it basically is, but yeah. it, it only plays like the audio, like the instrumental audio parts of the mm-hmm. song. And then, that, of course, they end up singing. It's a fun little cute moment, but then, of course, it's disrupted when he sees... Helen, his ex-wife, what? with her new... Squeeze. Uh, her new squeeze, yeah, let's stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just it's it's a well-done scene. Obviously, it's such a sort of a bit of a tonal shift between mm-hmm. the characters. I think it's the first time that Sally sees Harry in such a vulnerable state. Yeah. Where he's, a, you know, he's, a little, he's fun, he's nihilistic, he's self-deprecating, but we've never seen him, like, truly shell-shocked or yeah. even miserable in the following scenes after that. And I think I loved that string of uh it was honest i feel like we've all been in that situation i've seen someone from our past stuns us a little bit you are too correct my man <laughs> no worries it sucks but it happens so well, that might be my highlight scene i hope you enjoyed our rob reiner's director's corner with when harry met sally that's the one no worries well moving on what's new in cinemas and or streaming services this week jake so this is a big Big week, Zeke. A big week. So hold on to your butts. Let's do um, this. My butt is being held on to. Okay, good. I can see it. Tense. And <laughs> I'm going to stop. <laughs> good stuff, mate. Thank you. Uh, coming to Netflix this week, The Boss Baby, Get That Baby, is the Boss Baby sequel we've all been waiting for. But, Zeke, here's the catch. It's interactive. Much Ooh. like Bandersnatch, Bandersnatch, you can interact God. with the, the decisions of the Boss Baby. <laughs> Uh, also, there's a few new shows coming. I believe like the first season of a new show for Young Wallader uh, and Away. So well, those are coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming to stand this week, you've got Castaway. Uh, speaking of, we were talking about Tom Hanks mm-hmm. earlier, I believe. Uh, Creed Two, 
which I feel like you're a big fan of the Creed series, Zeke. I am. I, I did enjoy both of them. I enjoyed the first one more, but yeah. Is there only the two out at the there moment? There are only two, right? Okay, that's cool. Uh, My Week Marion is also coming out. Uh, 2009's Watchmen. And uh, the... Uh, oh, God. I, you know, I was practicing the pronunciation of this the other day. It's, okay, so it's the Zendaya show that she's in. Okay. Um, Which is called? You- <laughs> <laughs> Euphoria. No. <laughs> Euphoria. That's it. Jesus. It came nice. to me. Uh, so, yeah. Euphoria, which is a show that's actually been around for a little while. People talk about it. It, it's, it sounds like the 13 Reasons Done Right show. Very intense. Because I think Zendaya is 17. She's sort of this recovering drug addict. Um, but apparently it's a very intense show about high school. And it's coming to stand. So this would be my chance to finally catch it. Uh, coming to Disney Plus this week. He, here's the kicker, Zeke. We're about to get a bunch mm-hmm. of films that were meant to come out back in our... When we mentioned our uh, pre-recorded episodes of Princess Bride and Whiplash... Uh, a lot of films that were meant to come out then mm-hmm. are coming out this week. So Mulan is coming to Disney Plus this week. I think it's this Friday. Uh, however, if you have a Disney Plus subscription, that is not the only prerequisite to watch this film. So you need to pay an additional fee of 35 AUD to watch the film. What? Is this the first time you're hearing this? Yeah, that is a fortune. <laughs> a fortune. No, I yeah, I'm with you, dude. That's a lot of money. That's insane. I think the argument is that this was meant to be a theatrical release. If you went with more than two people, you would have spent more money to watch it anyway. With this, you could argue that you could have a group viewing, a bunch of people watch it under the same fee. Uh, but this is to purchase it, though. There is no rental option, and there is no option to buy it without a Disney Plus subscription. So you're ultimately paying about $42, $43. Yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> You don't want to do it on the podcast? <laughs> no. Um, I read... I am not can't confirm this. I've read that it will be free for Disney... Or free, quote-unquote. It will be available to all Disney Plus members and subscribers by December. So if you want to wait till December, that is also a valid option. Uh, coming new to cinemas, I've said this many, many times, Zeke. Maybe it's legit. The New Mutants. <laughs> I, okay. I did see that that is out. Uh, I think we get it on Friday, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Or we already have. I'm not too sure. But either way, this week, New Mutants is coming. Let's see. Oh, yeah. That's... Yeah. I've got that on my... Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah new, sorry. New Mutants on Friday. Uh, Magic, Wolfsbane, and the other teenage mutants try to come to grips with their superpowers while staying in a secret facility. Uh, this is an interesting one. So this is only coming to Luna this week. Uh, Squin? Squeen? In the Blue Room. It's an R-rated Australian director's uh, debut from Samuel Van Grinsven, which is a teenager trying to track down a man he met at an anonymous sex party. That sounds really interesting. I'm curious sounds about that. very interesting. It comes from uh, a man in Sydney. So hopefully, hopefully it's a good film. I want to see it. Uh, and there are two more films you can see from this Sunday, the 6th. You can watch the Sam Neill comedy Rams, which we've seen that trailer many times. Yeah, we have. <laughs> and uh, Bill and Ted face the music. You keen on that, Zeke? I, I would like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, classics include The Hateful Eight, which comes to Hoyts this Thursday the 3rd, and Lawrence of Arabia plays at Luna this Sunday the 6th. 
Which is funny, is it? Because I literally just bought both those films on Blu-ray. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'm Lawrence not going Arabia to... Lawrence Arabia is like nearly four hours, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a long film. <laughs> yeah. uh, I thought that was quite funny. And then finally, next Monday, the 7th of September, sees a double screening of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and The Big Lebowski at Luna. That's pretty good, too. I told you it was a big week. Now, Zeke. Yes. Were you, were you shoving your phone in my face... Because you want to do Bill and Ted on the podcast? I think so. I think that's going to so? be fun. You want to do that? <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, the, my suggestion, I'll push into the following week. How does that sound? Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, was, it, uh, was it a new movie or was it an old movie? Actually, you know what? It is a new movie, so I might as well read it out. Okay. Um, so also coming to Netflix this week, I'm very excited about this one, is the new Charlie Kaufman film. Oh, we'll um, do that one. Yeah, we'll do you that. Wanna, you still do yeah, that? We'll, we'll do that one. Okay. We'll face the music the week after. Okay. That actually works better for me. Yep, so, cool. We'll good. do that. All right. So, so little, little discussion on the podcast, guys. <laughs> quick, quick. So no, none of those are what we're watching this <laughs> week on the show. <laughs> but oh, Jake, no. what are we watching? I guess next <laughs> next week's show we're watching. I'm thinking of ending things. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming in. We have a real connection. A rare and intense attachment. Nothing is as it seems when a woman experiencing misgivings about a new boyfriend joins him on a road trip to meet his parents at a remote farm. So this film stars Jesse Buckley, Jesse Plemons, Tony Collette, and David Frowis. Oh, I'm just is... came for this Jesse Buckley. Hell yeah, I'm in. Yeah, she, I believe she is the uh, lead character no, yes. in this film. And Charlie Kaufman co-writes and directs the adaption from the 2016 novel of the same name by Ian Reid. So, I'm keen. I'm very keen. I'm a big Charlie Kaufman fan. And a Plemons fan. And a Plemons fan. And I'm a Buckley fan. And a Tony Collette fan, for sure. So, this is going to be a good good time. <laughs> and then next week, we'll probably, just a bit of a spoiler, we'll probably end up facing the music next week. Yeah, I, you heard the live uh, discussions on this show. Yeah. <laughs> a little sneak behind the curtain, so they say. Um, but no, I'm very keen for this film. I think it comes out this Friday on Netflix. So, we're just going to have to catch it this weekend, aren't we? That is true. That very, is true. Very no worries. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with, I think, I had, what is I'm it? I'm thinking of ending things. 